0: Louise is a 56-year-old woman following up on your orthopedic service. She had a right total knee replacement two days ago, but prolonged post-operative nausea and vomiting has delayed the start of her physical therapy. She describes right calf pain and swelling. On examination, her right calf is tender. It is 5 centimeters larger than the left when measured 5 centimeters below the inferior border of the patella. A right lower extremity with dopplers ordered, which documents deep venous thrombosis, abbreviated DVT. You explain the test results to Louise, who tells you she's never had a blood clot before. How will you explain why this blood clot formed? What workup should be done? Hi, and welcome to Audio Breaks. I'm Alex Dennis, and this is the break on foundations and frameworks of thrombotic disorders. Let's jump in. After completing this section you'll be able to 1. Compare and contrast thrombi and emboli 2. List risk factors for embolus formation and the mechanism of thrombus formation 3. List findings that raise the suspicion of a hereditary thrombotic disorder and 4. List the types of hereditary and acquired thrombotic disorders and describe their basic underlying causes. Part 1. What are thrombotic disorders? Thrombotic events, which are abnormal blood clots, are common. In fact, myocardial infarction, the most common cause of death in the United States, is usually caused by a thrombus. There are many risk factors, such as smoking, cancer, and recent surgery, that increase a patient's likelihood to form thrombi. Sometimes, patients with none of these risk factors develop thrombi. Instead, they may have an underlying thrombotic disorder that is responsible for their thrombus formation. These can be hereditary or acquired as part of an underlying disease like lupus. Although thrombotic disorders are uncommon, it's important to be aware of their mechanisms and clinical features, because once a diagnosis is made, the patient can often be treated effectively to prevent clot formation. The genetic thrombotic disorders and an important acquired disorder called antiphospholipid syndrome will be discussed in other audio breaks. Today, we'll focus on thrombosis in general and walk through a way to organize the thrombotic disorders so they have a framework in place before you dive into specifics. Understanding the difference between thrombi versus emboli is important for diagnosis and treatment. Thrombi are clots that form within vessels and stay where they are. The most common place for thrombi to form is in the deep veins of the legs, and formation of such a thrombus is called a deep venous thrombosis, or DVT. They block the flow of blood out of the leg, causing pain, redness, and swelling. A classic visual for DVT is that of a patient's legs and feet where you can clearly see one of the limbs has a purplish hue and is slightly bigger. In contrast, emboli are little chunks of clot that break off and float downstream to other places. In practice, it's mostly used as a verb, such as, "Oh, the LV thrombus embolized to the brain." Emboli can originate in the arterial or venous systems. Arterial emboli can break off from the carotid artery to cause strokes, or from the aorta to embolize to the gut, kidneys, or extremities. On the venous side, sometimes chunks of a DVT in the leg can break off and flow downstream all the way through the inferior vena cava and heart and out into the lungs. Eventually, these emboli get stuck when they reach a pulmonary vessel that's too small to pass through, termed a pulmonary embolus. This can be fatal in some circumstances. All right. Time for a first knowledge check. What's the difference between a thrombus and an embolus? A thrombus is an abnormal clot that forms in a vessel and stays where it is. An embolus is a chunk of clot that breaks off and moves somewhere else. Both can cause disastrous problems because they block the flow of blood through the vessel in which they sit. Let's now turn to what causes thrombi. The so-called Virchow's triad summarizes the factors that lead to thrombus formation. These are endothelial damage, abnormal or stasis of blood flow, and a hypercoagulable state. Let's go through these, starting with vessel wall injury. Trauma to the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels makes thrombosis more likely. Things like atherosclerotic plaques and traumatic injury fall into this category. Then there's the disruptions to normal laminar flow, which predispose to thrombosis. That can happen either from blood stasis or turbulence, though both generally have the same consequences. In stasis, the velocity of blood drops to a point where platelets can adhere to each other and to the vascular wall. Activated coagulation factors can then interact with each other and the platelets, initiating the coagulation cascade. Examples of conditions that promote stasis include varicose veins, atrial fibrillation, because blood collects in the heart since it's not pumping uniformly, and prolonged immobilization. In turbulence, flow is chaotic and little eddies from blood flow. Blood is more static in these areas, allowing the factors and platelets to come in contact with each other. Turbulent blood flow can occur due to a congenital heart defect, for example in valvular stenosis. The third factor in Virchow's stride is hypercoagulability. A variety of drugs, genetics, and acquired disease activate thrombosis and predispose patients to abnormal thrombus formation. This includes common things like smoking, pregnancy, or oral contraceptive use, and cancer. Oral contraceptives increase estrogen levels, which in turn increases plasma fibrinogen and clotting factors. Less commonly, genetic and acquired hypercoagulable disorders will do this. Let's check in on what we just covered. What are the three factors of Virchow's triad? The three factors of Virchow's triad are vessel wall injury, disruption to laminar blood flow, and the hypercoagulable state. Let's try another one. What are some conditions which predispose to thrombotic events due to abnormal blood flow? Varicose veins, atrial fibrillation, prolonged immobilization, and congenital heart defects are conditions marked by blood stasis or turbulence that can lead to clot formation. Part 2. How do patients with thrombotic disorders present? Most patients who develop thrombi do not have a predisposing thrombotic disorder. However, there are several signs in a patient's history and physical exam that should raise suspicion of an underlying thrombotic disorder. Has the patient had a history of recurring thromboses, or have other family members had thrombotic episodes? Is the patient young or less than 50 years old? Has the patient had one or more miscarriages? And has the patient had a venous thrombus somewhere other than in the legs or lung? If the answer is yes to one or more of these questions, that would certainly be a red flag. Part 3. What are the different thrombotic disorders? All right it's time to visit everyone's favorite topic, the coagulation cascade. Only second best to the respiratory cycle, am I right? A defect in a variety of coagulation factors can cause genetic thrombotic disorders. We do deep dive-ins in each of these conditions in other episodes. But for now, let's just do a quick refresher. Remember there's two pathways of the clotting cascade, the extrinsic and the intrinsic pathway, both of which converge to activate thrombin, or factor 2, which in turn activates fibrin, or factor 1. The intrinsic pathway really carries most of secondary hemostasis, and that's what factors 12, 11, 9, and 8 are part of. Notice how we skipped factor 10? Well, that's what the intrinsic pathway activates. So it works out nicely because really, factors 8 through 12 are part of the intrinsic branch. Factor 7, then, is part of the extrinsic pathway, and also acts to activate factor 10. Factor 10 in conjunction with factor 5, works to activate factor 2, which is thrombin, and I remember that because 10 divided by 5 is 2. And since 2 is thrombin, it works to turn fibrinogen into fibrin, which is activated factor 1. Works out nice, huh? It goes 10, 5, 2, 1. Of course we have to keep this pathway in check, and that's where proteins S and C come in, to inhibit factors 9 and 5. I definitely said factors at least 20 times, didn't I? Let's make sure you keep them straight. What factor is activated by both the intrinsic and extrinsic branches of the clotting cascade? That would be factor 10. Moving on, let's not discuss the genetic disorders that stimulate clotting. Factor V Leiden is the most common of all thrombotic disorders. The Leiden is in the name because it was discovered in the city of Leiden in the Netherlands. It's caused by a point mutation in the factor V gene that makes the resulting factor V, factor V Leiden, resistant to inactivation by protein C. This means that factor V Leiden participates in the coagulation cascade, but that it cannot be turned off, and the cascade continues to make fibrin when it should not. Another proclotting disorder, although pretty rare, results from a gene mutation in factor 2, or prothrombin. In this disorder, patients make too much prothrombin, which is the precursor to thrombin, i.e. deactivated form, which causes the formation of fibrin and ultimately clot formation. Too much factor 2 leads to too much thrombin, which leads to the formation of excess fibrin, creating a hypercoagulable state. Let's now consider genetic disorders that inhibit clotting termination for the same end result of too much clotting. We just mentioned the disorder in which there's too much prothrombin. Well, you can also have an antithrombin deficiency, which similarly results in too much thrombin. Antithrombin also acts on most of the factors and shuts down the cascade very effectively. Protein C and protein S deficiencies similarly result in less anti-clotting factors. These genetic abnormalities disrupt the function of proteins C and S, which act together to shut down the coagulation cascade. The genetic defects, however, are separate diseases. The problem here is the same as in antithrombin deficiency. If you lack a major inhibitor of the coagulation cascade, it's hard to turn the cascade off, and the result is too much fibrin formation. Finally, let's discuss the main acquired thrombotic disorder, the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Patients, for one reason or another, make antibodies to phospholipids, and in some patients this can wreak havoc on the vascular endothelium and on platelets in complex ways, leading to a syndrome involving abnormal and excessive clotting. It can happen as a primary disorder without underlying systemic disease, or it can be part of a systemic disease like lupus. And that's all I have today on thrombosis. Let's see what you want to be taking away from this episode. Let's start our recap with a general question. What events do thrombotic disorders predispose patients to? Thrombotic disorders are diseases that predispose a patient to forming abnormal clots, or thrombi. Most thrombotic disorders are hereditary. Next, What is the most common thrombotic disorder? That would be factor V Leiden, in which factor V cannot be inactivated by protein C. What is the Virchow triad, and what are its three factors? The Virchow triad describes the three main underlying causes of thrombi, which are endothelial damage, abnormal blood flow, and hypercoagulability. What are some signs and symptoms that would make you suspect a thrombotic disorder? Thrombite that occur in young patients, in unusual places in the body, or in patients with a previous or family history of thrombosis should raise the suspicion of an underlying thrombotic disorder. What are two thrombotic disorders that result in excess thrombin, or activated Factor 2. You can have too much thrombin from a Factor 2 gene mutation or from an antithrombin deficiency. Factor 2 gene mutation is caused by excess production of prothrombin, Factor 2, leading to increased levels of thrombin, which is Factor 2 but activated. On the other hand, antithrombin deficiency is a genetic disorder that inhibits clotting termination, Recall that antithrombin is an important inhibitor of several clotting factors in the clotting cascade, not just thrombin. And finally, what is the most common acquired thrombotic disorder? Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is an acquired disorder caused by antibody formation to phospholipids, damaging vascular endothelium and platelets in complex ways. That leads to a syndrome involving abnormal and excessive clotting. Armed with your newfound knowledge, let's revisit our patient from the beginning of this episode. Think back to Louise now. She had knee surgery two days ago, and she's been nauseated ever since. She also has right calf pain and swelling, and you noticed that her right leg was larger and discolored compared to her left one. You ordered a Doppler and found a DVT. Why did she develop her blood clot? What workup is performed? You explain to her that her circumstances were a perfect storm for a clot. She experienced endothelial damage from surgical trauma, stasis from prolonged postoperative immobilization, and the hypercoagulable state of surgery. You recognize this as the triad and the three reasons for Louise's DVT. You explain each of these reasons and how they led to the development of her blood clot. Because she is at high risk for DVT, and because this is her first one, An expensive workup is deemed unnecessary at this time. Louise is treated with anticoagulants and responds well. We discharge her on post-operative day 6 and she continues with outpatient physical therapy. And that's a wrap on foundations and frameworks of thrombosis. Remembering your Virchow's stride will get you far on this topic. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe to this podcast Your feedback is super helpful to us. You can also get the full Rx Bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com. I will catch you on the next one.